2: the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're going to talk about the true professional ideal. So welcome, Ed. Hey, good to hear from you, Ron. You too. So the true professional ideal, this is a topic that I'm actually have always been fascinated with professions, how a group of people get to call themselves a profession. And surprisingly, Ed, there's an enormous body of scholarship on this. Sociologists and historians and anthropologists uh, have studied this. And if you just go to Amazon and Google or Google uh, the amount of literature and books on this topic, It's actually quite overwhelming. I mean, we're still kind of pouring through the Hippocratic Oath. Um, So, this is a fascinating and, I think, wide-ranging discussion we'll have today.
3: Well, yeah, and because it it really goes back to a a long, long time ago, right, Ron? I mean, I guess the earliest recognized professions were divinity, medicine, law, and I, I guess perhaps engineering. but. And that that and they they were either serviced by guilds or by the by church offices. So there was it was very very interesting that the the emergence of of these professions. Exactly, exactly,
2: and you know, just interesting, Ed, because you're 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 a word guy, and your dad was a Latin teacher. Uh, the word profession comes from the Latin noun profession, right? Which which means to profess something. A profession, mm-hmm. by definition has to stand for something and i there's a book out there that i really liked although it's i don't recommend people read it unless they're really really interested in this topic it's by a guy a sociologist by the name of bruce kimball who who uh, wrote the true professional ideal in america mm. and he says the noun professional didn't even appear in american dictionaries until 1861.
3: oh wow So,
2: yeah, whether they called them guilds or, you know, tradesmen or whatever, but uh, it's pretty interesting. And then he goes on and he identifies three eras of professionals. Religion was the dominant profession through the mid-18th century. And then it went to law up through the mid-19th century and science from about the 1910s. So, doctors. Uh, essentially and other scientists mm-hmm. professors are in there too in various eras but one of the things he says is there's nothing sacred about professions right i mean they can and do go away they 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 still have to create and add value to society outside themselves
3: mm-hmm. yeah and they've got to be re- some kind of a repository for for needed knowledge right and i think that, that that might be part of part of the challenge as we see the emergence and what changes but there in the end, Ron, there's really no hard and fast rule as to say what is and is not a profession. I mean, the, the, I should say we, there, there's no universally agreed to set of criteria.
2: No, not – I mean, there, there's, there's lists. Some of the scholarship you can read and they'll say these 11 things, these seven things, these eight right. things. What One of the things I do like about what Kimball has done is he's boiled it down to three – and I okay. do think the scholarship has reached a consensus on this, and we're going to go through those three, Ed, but um, it's just interesting that the first law to regulate a profession was in America, in 60, in America was mm-hmm. in 1639 in, Virgin, in Virginia, uh, and the purpose was to control fees physicians could charge. <laughs> and then ten years later, Massachusetts passed a law regulating the quality of medical care. So, it, it another thing I think that needs to be pointed out here is that the regulation of professions uh, or even uh, occupational licensure is is regulated by the states. It comes under mm-hmm. the state jurisdictions, and that's because of the residual powers in the U.S. Constitution. That right is granted to the states, but. Here are the three characteristics that Kimball lays out, and I really like these. And we can discuss these, and we can, you know, ask ourselves how many how many professions actually fit this criteria. But mm-hmm. his three characteristics are: uh, to be a profession, there has to be a common body of expertise or knowledge, right? Sure. And I always say that, you know, if we took 50 uh, British accountants or chartered accountants and put them in a room with 50 accountants or lawyers, um, they, they would hit it off. They would have things to talk about, right? Where if you just took 50 British, you know, strangers and put them in a the room with Americans, professionals, they might talk about the Olympics or something. But that common body of knowledge, right, kind of bonds you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that common body of expertise. And then the second criteria is a profession has to have autonomy, which is Greek for self-governance, and it has to be able to exclude people. So it gets to determine its own entrance requirements like an exam, like the CPA exam or the actuarial exam, the medical hmm. boards, that type of thing, and be able to discipline and kick out members that don't abide by the professional standards. So autonomy okay. and exclusion And the third one, and this is really fascinating, Ed, because it kind of ties to our show, is the spirit of service. A profession has to put the public interest before its own. Now, that's a very interesting notion, I think, and it's kind of slippery in some ways. But basically, what that says is, if there's a conflict between your interest as a professional and the public's interest, the public interest has to come first. So if you read any of the canons of any of the professions, I've read a lot of them, they all in there profess somewhere the spirit of service, the public interest. You'll see those terms repeated over and over and over, no matter what profession you look at.
3: And then, of course, this begs some questions on that is, is what, what, who gets to decide what the spirit of service is, is right? What, what is good for the public? Who gets to decide that, right? And this Absolutely. is, I think, what you meant by the by the slippery slope. But I wanted to jump back to the the second one, just because, as you said, I'm a, a word guy. And why is it autonomy and exclusion? Why are they? Why do you think that they are? It's that's considered two things instead, or or one thing with an and, as opposed to adding a fourth characteristic. Do you have a thought on that? Uh, I
2: think it's because he's 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 basically combining entrance. You know, with self regulation, who gets to come in and, and proclaim or be a professional? So, entrance, and he kind of ties that to also kicking them out when they act bad, mm-hmm. right? So, the disciplinary procedures, uh, procedures that go along with being a self governed organization.
3: Okay, so that which then leads to the, this this notion of exclusion of people who either don't meet the standards or are doing things that are not in the best interest of the of the organization or the profession itself absolutely okay, yep. gotcha so then it, this is interesting because where does then you think regulation fit in if if they're supposed to be autonomous? At what point do you draw the line between autonomy and now regulation?
2: This is a great question, Ed, and this is one of the points that's debated a lot. For instance, there's a white paper out there from 2007 by two accounting PhDs talking about the accounting is no longer a profession. And they date its specific death with the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. And one of the things they say is the accounting profession has lost autonomy. It's lost the ability to regulate itself because there's so many regulations it has to keep up with. peekaboo SEC, you know, goes on and on and on. Um, right. And in California, which I believe is the only state, in California, the makeup of the state board of accountancy, which is the regulatory body for CPAs, mm-hmm. the majority are non-CPAs. So they don't fit the autonomy um, characteristic of a profession. So if you regulate, Mm. if you don't have that autonomy, uh, uh, you know, scholars would say you're not a profession. Now, you know, obviously there's a lot of gray here. This is more like a continuum, but I, I give you a great example that I love to use is journalism. Mm-hmm. There's actually cases now, you know, winding their way through the court system, journalists or, you know, various bloggers, you know, for the Huffington Post or whoever, right, sit in their underwear sure. in the basement and blog and say, I'm a journalist and therefore I'm protected by the journalistic code of ethics and we're a profession and therefore my sources can remain anonymous and, and all that. So the question that judges and juries have to decide is, is journalism a profession? Mm-hmm. And if you look at these three cr- criteria, I think it's pretty clear that they're not. <laughs> they mm-hmm. don't have a common body of expertise, despite what Columbia J School might say. Um, they don't. They don't have autonomy and exclusion. When, when was the last time you saw a journalist get kicked out of anything? You know, they, I mean, they get fired, right, for making yeah. up stories and things. And we right, can have a right. whole discussion about whether or not journalism is is puts the spirit of service, you know, front and center. Um, But the fact is, I mean, William F. Buckley called himself a journalist his entire career. I'm sure much to the chagrin of, you know, Peter Jennings and Dan Rather and other journalists. Right, Uh, sure. But who's to say Peter, uh, William F. Buckley wasn't a journalist? He wrote.
3: Right, right. And then who's to say the the bloggers aren't? And, you know, I I think that's where the line gets murky, right? Because the, the word then professional, which you would think, means one who is a member of a profession, then that, get, that gets expanded even more. Like, you know, you have a professional baseball player, but, you know, like, yes, they have expertise, uh, certainly not autonomy and exclusion. Uh, well, I suppose you could argue that they have it more than journalists do. <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, you know.
2: The team owners, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, spirit of service, I, I guess, because you're in the entertainment business. But just think about the other places where you're here professional. You know, I'm a I'm a uh, you know, I, I I I'm a professional consultant. I've actually said that myself. What does that mean? Right? It, 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 a lot of people just think that 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 word professional means that you get paid for it as opposed to an amateur to contrast the word professional with amateur. And that's right. and that's really the only difference in their mind.
2: Like a professional speaker or something like yeah. that. And and I think yeah. a lot of people who have a license for some type of occupation also yeah. refer to themselves as a profession. You know, I'm a professional barber, hairstylist, or whatever. And just because you have a license, does not does not mean you're a profession.
3: Mm-hmm. At least, at, at least by this by this by, right by his standards here. And I guess that's where it's difficult. I mean, because because there there is no uh, there's no exclusionary use of the word to mean okay only these three things, right? Correct. So yeah so that that jumps up but i guess for the purposes of the con- the rest of our conversation uh, we're 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 going to use this definition right this three characteristics expertise autonomy and exclusion and then spirit of service for for the, the the framework of the the conversation that we have
2: yes absolutely and talk about how that is changing and you know like the daniel suskin richard suskin book the future of the professions if we are really entering into a post-professional society, which I just love that term because it's so provocative, right and evocative. Um, then, is this word "profession" or "professional"? Is it even relevant, Ed? Is it is it a is it a distinction without a difference?
3: Mm-hmm. I think
2: that's a really interesting question,
3: right? Right,
2: because sure. I, I I'm not at all sure that our airlines aren't professionals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I put my life in their hands. I have the utmost trust in them, right? Mm-hmm. And, but they're, you know, are pilots or, or airline mechanics or Boeing engineers, you know, are they quote unquote a professional? And does it matter? I mean, could this just be archaic thinking? I guess is kind of what I'm suggesting with this whole scholarship area.
3: It is very very possible, and especially as as we see the emergence. Now, is is Watson a professional? right <laughs>
2: <Exactly>. <laughs> absolutely well Ed this is great this is going to be a fascinating discussion and folks we'd like to remind you if you want to contact Ed or myself you can do so at ask T-S-O-E, at varisage.com and please check out the soul of check out our live events page too and see if Ed and, uh, or myself will be near you somewhere we'd love to have you come out and say hello and now we want to hear from our sponsor leading results
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
3: Is your website just a brochure, or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results.
0: We're
3: talking about the true professional ideal here on The Soul of Enterprise. And Ron, you had wanted to make another couple of points, I think, around the, the first characteristic of the three of a profession. First of all, just to re- remind our listeners that they are expertise, autonomy and exclusion, and then the spirit of service. What, it, what do you mean by, what do you think he means by expertise on this? Common body
2: of knowledge. You know, the idea right. that uh, doctors, no matter where they're educated, are probably going to learn the same types of things, same with accountants, lawyers, you know, that, that in other words, there's a can and there's a curriculum that that's fairly well standard no matter where you study, even though the laws or customs might be different country to country. Um, the point I wanted to make about expertise, because I think another way to to analyze this whole issue, Ed, is from the economic perspective of should we grant professions certain monopolies, you know, this the quote unquote grand bargain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, economists don't like this because economists tend not to like monopolies. They don't they don't trust <laughs> monopolies. Right. And so right. one of the things we know about the behavior of all professions is that they do tend to exclude people to limit their number you know, limit the competition, keep their keep their wages high. That, mm-hmm. That's been well documented. This goes back to Melton Friedman's PhD that he wrote in 1943. Um, but just to kind of corroborate that, I just wanted to share with you, and Dan and I find this fascinating, and again, this relates to the CPAs. Um, Dan Morris. Dan but, Morris. Yep, Dan Morris, yep. Um, because we teach ethics and this comes up. But in June of 1898, a gal named Christine Ross, who was a native of Nova Scotia, passed the New York CPA exam. So in June 1898. Now, New York was the first state in the union of the United States to, you know, to grant a CPA license. Okay. But her, her certificate as number 143 was withheld until December 21st, 1899. Now, that's a year and a half
1: hmm.
2: after the Board of Regents decided whether or not a woman... Should be certified. (laughs) Now, we've looked for those minutes of that board meeting, Ed. We can't find it. (laughs) Uh, I would love to have been a fly on the wall because my question is, what did that have to do with expertise? Right. She demonstrated competence by passing the exam, and -hmm. yet they held it up for, you know, who knows why, good old boys club, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, this is pretty common. You know, Mm -hmm. we know. Our passage rate, when there's too many lawyers, gets tightened up. Same with CPA rate, probably same with doctors, you know, and other professions as well. So, it, it's, you know, they don't always behave the way they profess.
3: Well, and that does, and I was flip about it earlier, but that does bring up the point is, can, w- would would an implementation of Watson be able to sit for the CPA exam? Yeah. No, it's a, a, a good right.
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and who knows, it may become a Supreme Court case. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. I, I I thought it was really interesting, by the way, when Greg uh, LaFollette made the point that he thinks his grandkids are going to be alive when the Supreme Court decides if humans can drive.
3: Yeah, because we're so it's proper, because yep. so
2: dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I could see I could see Watson, you know, suing to sit for the bar or something.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Yeah, right? I mean, you want on jeopardy. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it has it, it pro- probably could write a write a better test. Although but although then, you know, that that brings up some other ethical questions as can you imagine, you know, the machine now writing the test the to test. become then and all of a sudden now the machines exclude the humans and you know, I think we get to you know Robert Heinlein and singularities and stuff like that, but uh, so yeah. So it's a, but it's interesting because I, as a as a pro- person who's studied project management, we we have, there's there is a resource book in project management known as the PMBOK, the Project Management Body of Knowledge, and I, I often joke that it can be a substitute for Lunesta if you have sleeping <laughs> disorder. Well, <laughs> in all fairness, it's a it's a reference book, right? It's 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 a listing of all of the stuff. And I I think – and I do love a lot of the concepts in project management. I think they've been very, very helpful in my career and in in driving forward change in many organizations where I put them into practice. But I do have to say that I think you're already seeing the emergence of this protectionism among the people in the Project Management Institute and other governing bodies around this – around – Making sure that, that this is a, this is a way that we can keep wages up. I mean, it's 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 or I already see it.
2: Yeah, and and we you know we see this all the time. We've we've joked on this show about interior decorators, you know, lobbying the state of Texas and for in Florida for years to become licensed, you know, to, to quote unquote protect the public, and they always cloak themselves in that protect the public, the spirit of service, all of that. I'm I'm thinking. Really? Interior decorators? What are you protecting the public from? Bad taste?
3: Oh. Uh, you know. Flower, flower arrangers in Louisiana and shampoo yep. in, shampooers in Texas. Yep, lightning
2: rod salesmen in New Hampshire. I mean, the list goes on and on of these crazy regulations and, and occupational licensing all cloaked to save, you know, protect the public. And, of course, the public never asks for these things. So I you know, it's 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 self aggrandizement, it's rent seeking, whatever you want to call it. But it does call into question, Ed, the, the, the so called you know, the conflict between the spirit of service and self interest, right? I mean, they profess to put the, the public's interest first, and yet in the background, they're doing bootleg or Baptist things, or they're rent-seeking, they're fighting for regulation. We see this with bookkeepers, right? Bookkeepers are trying to become a profession. Well, they're running to the government. They want to be regulated like accountants or lawyers. And I'm thinking, really, you're making a deal with the devil if you do this, because I think it squelches innovation as well.
3: Yeah, well, you know, and and it's it's really interesting, because even within, say, SAGE or other Software providers for the longest time, you know, we we, ha- we have these certification processes. Now, this is this is clearly private organization, right? This is this is you know a, a, a software provider such as Microsoft or Sage saying you have to have these classes, you have to have this knowledge, this understanding in order to say that you can accurate, uh, appropriately represent our products, right? Right. To others, so it's private, and I get it. But I, but I have had you know many many conversations with people who uh, come to some of the the classes that I taught, which are in some cases part of this requirements, where they're saying you know that that Sage or Microsoft or wherever needs to do more to 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 protect uh, the 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 status that we have, you know, and because. Like it or not, somebody could hang up a shingle tomorrow and and say I do consulting on some product and not have the certifications from the manufacturer. And there's really not much anybody can do about it other than to say, well, this person's not not certified by our for by our our product experts, but they might have the knowledge. They just never sat for the test. Exactly. You know, and they might actually be better than people who actually did sit, sit for the test.
2: <laughs> the, the, <laughs> so. the idea that the testing, the credentialing process, uh, you know, assures uh, you know Cadillac type quality is is you know I I, I think uh, empirically not not true. Uh, you can be quite quite pri- quite proficient and not meet the certification requirements. I mean, there's lots of examples of this, but just just one. I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright, he he didn't qualify to sit for the architectural exams.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, does anybody want to say he's not a qualified architect? I mean, that, and, and I think it's that, that lack of diversity, you know, of ideas that, that stifles and, and keeps the profession mired in its orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of the arguments that Friedman made about it. If, if they're not getting ideas from other places, you know, they don't have a monopoly on wisdom. <laughs> uh <laughs> you know then they're they're going to then they're just going to kind of bathe in their own dirty bathwater and 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 I think uh that's been proven because I mean let's face it most of the innovations come from the outside.
3: Oh right and right, exactly and 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 then get stifled actually by the by the people inside the profession. Right? Yep. Uh, because it usually means a, a a broadening of the of the conversation, a, a broadening of the of the knowledge, or a dis or better yet, a dissemination of the knowledge, so that it's more accessible to lay people, for example.
2: Right. Right. But that, as you were explaining that, you know, some of the feedback that you, Sage and, and Microsoft, gets, you know, for not doing more to protect people that aren't, you know, quote unquote, certified, it, it, it does illustrate why. The professional bodies, the regulatory bodies, are so quick to go after people um, <laughs> that that practice without a license. I mean, they spend right. more time doing that than than monitoring the quality of the practitioners. They they will chase to the ends of the earth somebody who's practicing without a license
3: because that's well, sure, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and this goes, I think there was a a case relatively recently about, you know, people hair braiding and someone having to sit for all the cosmetology stuff in order to be able to to do hair braiding, which is a, in a way, a completely different discipline. It has nothing to do with, you know, chemical peels or and skin treatments or all of these things that are on the, the, the required exam to say that you're a, a cosmetologist slash, you know, hairstylist or whatever, because I guess they're linked together in some, some states when, you know, hair, but, but hair braiding doesn't require any of those, the knowledge of any of those things.
2: In fact, hair braiding is not even taught in cosmetology school, you right. know. And it's kind of archaic. I mean, a barber can shave, but a cosmetologist can't, right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, it's, I mean, these things are just uh, – that's why I think this whole idea, this whole notion of a post-professional society is, is really interesting. But, um, yeah, fascinating stuff. And, I, and, and there's been another uh, tectonic change, I think, in, in most of the professions, uh, and it happened in 1977, and that's what I want to deal with next.
3: All right. Well, we will talk about that tectonic shift that happened next, but first we want to remind you that in order to get a hold of Ron and myself, you can send us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. We do put full show notes as well as show previews up on our website, thesoulofenterprise.com, and there are links there to all of our shows under our archive page. want you to know that we do have many, many short links available, especially for the guests that we mentioned. Ron mentioned Greg La Follette earlier. If you want to get to his show, just it's thesoulofenterprise.com slash LaFollette uh, as well as other guests that we've had. So if you just know that there's been a guest that you want to hear, just type in their last name. You should be able to take it directly to that page. But right now we want to hear from our sponsor, Quanta CRM. <laughs>
1: We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper. Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have, but have you ever read a book where the foreword changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword, so when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com voice america business network the bottom line in business
0: you are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag #AskTSOE. now back to the soul of enterprise
3: And we are back talking about the true professional idea. You know, Ron, this is the code from the AICPA prior to 1978, and it said this. Solicitation to obtain clients is prohibited under the rules of conduct because it tends to lessen the professional independence towards clients, which is essential to the best interest of the public. Advertising, which is a form of solicitation, is prohibited promotional practices such as solicitation advertising tend to indicate a dominant interest in that ugly p-word ron profit <laughs> that horrible p-word so i you know I, this is hysterical to me that i guess this is the origins of 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 why even to this day you know accountants suck at marketing right yeah. is that <laughs> no, that's very fair.
2: I, I that's what you just read is only thirty-eight years old.
3: I so know that's crazy.
2: Prior to this, it was illegal for accountants, and and you should. And the lawyer code's worse, by the way. Uh, and I'm 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 sure the medical profession had their restrictions uh, that were just as bad. And, you know, I guess prior to this, professionals were all 501c3s. I mean, they were all nonprofits. They couldn't have an interest in profit. Um, But what cracked here, and this is why I think 1977-78 is such a tectonic shift in the professions, is the Bates case, the Supreme Court's base case. And it started from a little ad by a little law firm uh, called the Legal Clinic of Bates and Osteen in Phoenix, Arizona. And they ran this little ad in the newspaper, and they said, here's what an adoption costs. Here's what a name change, a simple bankruptcy. And they gave prices. And other law firms, of course, don't like competition, so they called up the bar. They said, you need to issue a cease and desist order against Bates and Osteen. They're breaking the the code. They're breaking the law. And, of course, the bar association does because they like to go after people that, that do that type of thing. And Bates and Osteen told them to go get stuffed and said this is a first amendment, free speech, constitutional right. There's nothing false or misleading about our ad and we're not taking it we're not taking it down. Mm-hmm. And that and and the Bar Association sued him. went to the Supreme Court and sure enough, Bates and Osteen prevailed. And we'll put in the show notes, this law firm still exists. And if you go and visit their webpage, the home page, uh very prominent, <laughs> they're very proud that they're the firm that won this case. And it opened the floodgates to professional advertising. So now today, rather than it being illegal or, or frowned upon, um, you know, marketing has taken on a huge role in all professional firms, right? I mean, KPMG, the big four they're they're advertising in The Economist, Harvard business, they're all over the PGA tour, right with commercials or whatever. Uh, right. We've become much more sophisticated with respect to marketing. Uh, in all the professions, and I actually think it's a good thing. And and by the way, so do economists, because economists think that marketing and advertising gives consumers information, makes them more informed of new products, uh, opens up innovation, and keeps prices in check. By the way, through healthy competition, and so all of those factors have been empirically studied. So, but it, that code that you read is is absolutely amazing. To think that that I mean this is still in my lifetime
3: right well and and what's so clear is that it, it it was really the exact opposite of what it professed to be which was that these promotional practices tended to indicate a dominant interest in profit when the reality was it was it was it was keeping out competition right so that exactly. <laughs> they could maintain high levels of profitability so it was it was really in the end it, Hippocratic, uh, um, you know, it, it, hypocritical, yeah. <laughs> hypocritical. Like why I was yeah. thinking Hippocratic oath. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, hypocritical. I mean, absolutely hypocritical because it it was doing the exact opposite of what the the the, the code even intended. And look, I. It, th- this cannot have come – well, 1978. Okay, so I started working at a CPA firm on Long Island when I got out of school in 1987, the end of 1987. So this this case was not yet 10 years old, right? And I, I can remember some of the, the partners of the firm t- talking at that time about certain other things that they – like, for example, we, we, we would resell software at cost, right? because it they, they, they didn't think it was ethical for the firm to make a profit on the sale of a product product right right but yet it was okay for me to go out and charge you know 100 bucks an hour or whatever it was for them it was okay for them to make a profit on me right, <laughs> right? Yeah. but you know not not on the not on the sale of, of the product and in the end what was started to happen is is that some software companies started to realize this and they started to say listen you you know you you, if you're not going to sell our product at, at list price, we're not going to allow you to continue. Now, there's some restraint of trade issues there, too. But, you know, there ha- there has to be some control, suggested list prices and, and all of that to hold things uh, that were, you know, because otherwise it, it would be out of control, right? It would be that the, the people can't control what their products are. So, I, I don't know. I just thought it was very odd that we we were all worried about not making a profit on the sale of of a product, but it was okay to make money off of Ed. And,
2: and you know, I've talked to practitioners who were, you know, practiced a long time before this Bates decision, and they would say, oh, yeah, it was a different world back then. Because if, for instance, if I got a phone call from, say, one of, you know, my colleague's uh, customers, like Dan, one of Dan's customers, say, Mm -hmm. and he said, you know, I love Dan, but I can never get a hold of the guy. He's always on an airplane. Ron, I want to switch to you. Well, Ed, I would have hung up the phone and I would have picked up and called Dan and, mm-hmm. you know, and say, hey, Dan, you got a problem with this customer. Go fix it. You know, mm-hmm. but today, let's face it, what, do you, what what would a practitioner do? Of course, they'd take the customer. They may still call Dan, but it's mm-hmm. asking for all the files.
3: Right, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right.
2: So, right. Th- no doubt that marketing is is you know, made us, I think, more aware of, of um, you know that we have to add value to the customer at all times that there's lots of marketing moments of truth and all of that i actually think it's been a really good thing for the profession but there are some people that that say this is when the profession started to go you know to hell in a handbasket when we opened it up uh, because of the bates decision
3: because because we're suddenly advertising and you know that almighty that profit motive ron it's so bad
2: that's So bad, <laughs> and and you know you did you br- you bring out another really interesting point, and I do think this is the chink in the armor between the so-called profession, um, you know, professing to be uh, standing for the spirit of service, and then doing things that go directly against that, right? Mm-hmm. Like not not allowing marketing and advertising and innovation. And I also think, at least for the CPA profession, you can you can make the same argument about in- independence. Mm-hmm. I don't know how auditors can claim with a straight face that they're independent when mm-hmm. they're paid by the very companies that they're auditing. It, See Enron.
3: See Enron. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and
2: goes, you know, you can you can go back every single decade and find a massive uh, audit case, um, but but in but they're nowhere near being independent. You can't with a straight face say, "Well, we're paid to be independent." You mm-hmm. know, this is why I I agree with the economists who think that the stock market should actually pick the auditor and pay the auditor uh, for their selected companies that are listed on their exchanges. I think that would bring in some level of independence. It wouldn't be a panacea, but it'd be better than what we have now.
3: Yeah. Uh, but when you say the stock market, who at the stock market, like it, the, the, so the, the New York Stock Exchange would sure. have a board of governors or, yes. or some committee that would yeah. then select what the audit team is? And would right. there, do you think, what about forced rotation?
2: Well, see, I think that's one of the things they're dealing with the symptoms and not the problem. Sarbanes-Oxley didn't deal with this issue. Nobody touches this issue. The accounting profession certainly doesn't want to talk about it. Um, But the economists and think tanks, I mean, Cato, AEI, Brookings, all the think tanks talk about this all the time (laughs) and say the only way to reform this is to let the uh, stock markets – now they would impose a, a, a tax, Ed. They, make, you know, one percent, whatever it would take, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on maybe on traded shares, or maybe just on the corporation itself. Then there'd be money put in a pool, so the stock exchange could pay the auditors, right? Mm-hmm. But the theory is, it's the stock exchange that benefits from the information and the quality of the audits, right? Because it's their companies and they can claim higher quality, right? Just like a just like a underwriting laboratory. Oh, I see, yeah, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the yep. stock markets actually have more of an incentive to make sure that the audits are up to quality standards. And if they wanted to rotate auditors, you know, every few years, fine. That's their decision. Mm-hmm. But to, to think that you're going to have a regulation that that cha- you know that makes auditors rotate every five years and that's going to solve the underlying issue. Um, it's, it's ridiculous putting a Band-Aid on a, on a fever
3: mm-hmm.
2: doesn't deal yep. with the problem. So, right. and, and, and I think that's a huge conflict. And, I, you know, you, you can talk all you want about the spirit of service and the public interest. But then when you go and continue to have this facade of independence, I think you're doing the public a grave disservice. And maybe that's why I'm so enamored with the post-professional society. Because maybe we'd get away with, you know, we, we could overcome this. And I think the blockchain could help.
3: Well, when, when blockchain audits come out and N equals all for, then there's no reason to do an audit, then I, I suppose we will get there. But but let's take this down a level, Ron. Let's take this okay. down. We've got about a minute left in this segment and, and want to talk. Michael Hammer says a professional is someone who is responsible for achieving a result rather than performing a task. And I know this is something that you – spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about and I just I really do love that definition and I think a lot of people reject it right As someone who's responsible for achieving a result rather than performing a task and the manifestations of that's pretty pretty far reaching
2: it is because i mean if just let's if you go to a lasik surgeon and you know your job, his job is to get you to the best clinical eyesight you know efficaciously possible and if you're the 0.2 percent or whatever it is that has issues, and you have to go back to follow up, you know, or even additional surgeries or whatever, then that's part of his his or her job to get mm-hmm. you to that outcome of the best clinical eyesight possible, irrespective of how many visits. He's not charging for tasks in each visit and each you know time under the laser. He's charging to get you to an outcome. And if you're not doing that, then I think it's fair to say you're a day laborer.
3: Well, now you've just taken it too far, Ron. <laughs> no, and, but, and, and I think that there's a lot around consulting theory of that, too. Is like, you know, is, is a consultant there to be a pair of hands, an expert, or to be a collaborator? And, you know, that's one of, one of actually the questions that I often talk about with people is, is, what kind of consultant do you want to be? And, you know, the, the, to me personally, the pair of hands consultant is the least appealing, right? And I, that's, that's just not exciting to me. I I totally agree,
2: Ed. Let's flush this out some more because I think this is a really important point and a a very important distinction. But in the meantime, folks, you can contact Ed or myself at AskDSOE at com, And we really appreciate all the iTunes reviews that have been coming in lately. Uh, Thank you so much, everybody. That really helps the show. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage.
0: four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue, being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: And we're back here on The Soul of Enterprise talking about the professional ideal. This is our last segment on this, Ron. Boy, this, this show has just flown by. It's just a, a really interesting topic to me. So we left off by talking about Michael Hammer's definition of a professional who is so- someone who is responsible for achieving a result rather than performing a task. But, you know, you'd almost take that to the next level. And our friend Tim Williams is really has a brilliant example of this. And he talks about a, a, a landscape. Uh, exa- example, he said. Can you imagine someone comes to your house and you, you know you need a, a, a landscaper, and first person shows up and and they says, "Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna charge you um, you know twenty five bucks an hour, and depends how long it takes every week, and I'll just send you the bill for twenty five dollars an hour, and we'll, we'll you know your your I'll take care of your your lawn for you." And you know, sometimes it's going to take two hours. Sometimes it's going to take an hour. Sometimes it may take four, depending upon what he's got to do. Well, that that person is charging for the the inputs, right? The next person comes and they says, "I'm going to make sure. I'm going to edge. I'm going to mow your lawn. I'm going to trim your hedges, and uh, you know, turn over your your soil beds on on a quarterly basis." And that person says, "Hey, listen. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to charge you. It's going to be fifty bucks a week." Mm-hmm. right so no matter no matter what it is that they have to do that person is now charging for the outputs right because he's listed a specific set of outputs cut grass edge edge you know yard trimmed hedges etc the third person comes along and says you know i'm going to make sure that you have the best curb appeal in the neighborhood <laughs> and what that means is it you, you're the best curb appeal in the neighborhood. So I'll take care of everything: the cutting the grass, trimming the hedges, all this. I'm going to put you know new flowers in on a rotating basis, depending upon spring or fall or summer, whatever. If a if a bush dies, I'm just going to replace it. It's it's just all included, and that that you know charge for that is 150 dollars a month, right? First of all, that landscaper would have my business in a heartbeat. Mine too. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and even if the, the overall charge were more. But the, I, what I love about this is this is even going beyond one step or well, a step beyond what Michael Hammer talks about. And that is this person is charging you not for an output or a series of outputs, but actually an outcome.
2: Right. Best curbside appeal. And you yep. won't have to worry about your yard. And, and oh. I can't find that third type of landscape. <laughs> I got the second type. I have to go outside when they're here and point stuff out. And, and I could care less about this stuff. I'm not Martha Stewart. I don't want to <laughs> look at my yard. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to have to point out this or that. They should be doing that. And they don't because they're focused on outputs. Now, outputs are better than inputs. They do give me a fixed price, and I appreciate that. But I'd pay double what I pay now, maybe more, to get that third type of landscaper. And that's the power of focusing on the outcome or what Joe Pine and you know Gilmore call the transformation.
3: Mhm. Well, ex- ex- explain explain what they mean by that because they they've got a whole syllogism, right? A whole set of rules one to the next to the next.
2: Yes, it, it you know, it's basically charging for outcomes that the customer achieves, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it's the customer that becomes the product. It's right. an effectual service because you're actually changing the customer. You're mm-hmm. giving them the best curbside appeal, you're giving them peace of mind that they can travel and not have to worry about their their dumb yard. Um, That's a transformation, and that's actually the highest point in their progression of economic value. And I think professions, um, even though if that word's obsolete or that concept's obsolete, they're poised at that, and that's what they should take seriously, not a series of tasks. I mean, think of what the government has done to the medical profession. They've turned everything into a series of tasks because they pay based on tasks and procedures and tests. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the concierge doctors, they say, no, no, Ed, you and your family, you'll pay 20 grand a year, whatever it is, and we'll do whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. It's more of a assurance policy, right? That they're going to be there to, take, to keep you healthy no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And that's focusing on the outcome, the transformation. And I love that. And I think that's the absolute acid test. Because if you're charging by the hour, if you're charging by the task, then that's not professional.
3: So you question the professionalism of people just charging 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 tasks.
2: Absolutely. How's that mm-hmm. different than a day labor? I no, can I, hire a day labor and you know get my yard mowed and, and gutters cleaned and my dog walked, but I hire a professional to take me from A to B or A to Z, uh, and and whatever it takes, they got to get me there. Whether it's a personal trainer, or a doctor, or a lawyer, whatever. And, and I'm not saying they have, you know, I'm not expecting every oncologist to cure my cancer. That's not the point. But mm-hmm. they have to give it their best shot. That has right. to be the, the desired outcome and what they're focused on, not the series of tasks. I actually get annoyed even when my auto mechanic sits there and, you know, nickels and dimes me for every little thing. It's like, why don't you just do what needs to be done and give me a price? I, I I'm not sure. I like to see the detail because I feel like it's task driven and not outcome driven.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Maybe keep, I'm keep too my much. Ca- of keep curious. my car safe. No, keep my yeah. car safe. You know, it's to yeah. be sa- it's safe and in running order. And if it's if if it's if it's you know in the in the cautionary area, yeah, let me know about it. I suppose, but if it's in the red area, just fix it. I shouldn't be able to drive the car off the lot if it's if if it's, I'm a danger to myself and others in the car.
2: Yeah, if it needs brakes, I I don't need to know the type of brake pad and the fact that you rotated the drums and you know blah. It, it just you just do it. Just mm-hmm. focus on the outcome. And I think just like the landscaper example, that that third landscaper did the best job communicating value. Mm-hmm. That that's a really another uh, really important component of this because the pricing should reflect the transformation, not right. the tasks.
3: Right. Well, and then this gets to. You know one of our favorite words, Ron, which is our pr- professionals or true professionals in the case of that we're, the name of this show, really are focused on that word efficaciousness, right yes. so they're, they're, they're in, their intent is not to just be efficient nor effective, which although we do agree that effective is better than worrying about efficiency, but they want efficaciousness, which again is defined as achieving the maximum possible benefit. Yeah, such a great
2: word. I I might have told this story before, but the first time I heard that word was from a customer of mine when I practiced, who was both a lawyer and an MD, really, Uh really smart guy. And he had a very complex tax issue. And I kind of walked him through how we could handle it and different options and all of that. And he looked at me and he said, Ron, I trust you to do what is most efficacious, Mm-hmm. And I kind of nodded my head. And after he walked out of the office, I ran to the dictionary and said, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that word stuck in my brain ever since. It is a very powerful word.
3: Mm-hmm. Cause, right. It's because it's beyond just effectiveness. It's, the, it's again, that, ma- that maximum possible benefit, that transformation that you were talking about earlier that's so critical.
2: You know, David Meister in his book – True professional or true professionalism—I forget the exact title—but mm-hmm. he defined a professional as some a, a, as a technician who cares, and mm-hmm. and I like that. But I think the Hammer definition is better because somebody who takes responsibility for an outcome rather than performing a series of tasks, I think, really nails uh, the the transformation idea that, that Pine and Gilmore lay out in the in the experience economy. So. Anyway, Ed, I know we're up against it here. That was just a fascinating discussion. And, and folks, like James Baldwin said, you know, the price one pays for pursuing any profession or calling is an intimate knowledge of its ugly side. So even though this might have felt like we were bashing the professions, uh, you know, we're just, we're just talking about the ugly side uh, because obviously there is. But, uh, Ed, uh, next week we are going to do – are you ready for this?
3: Trashing yep. the timesheet. Yay! Yay! You know, can you believe we haven't done a show on trashing the no. timesheet? We're over a hundred plus shows, and we've never done a show on trashing the timesheet.
2: Well, it's time, and we're gonna we're gonna do it, and I'm really looking forward to it.
3: All right, well, I'll see you in 167 hours then.
2: This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern for Trashing the Timesheet. Ed and I, for once, are going to take this down. In the meantime, feel free to check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com for our complete show notes on today's topic. And you can also contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. See you next week.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.